Fandom University. Every other week, we deep dive into the topics we love and obsess over. Comics, novels, movies, sci-fi, and video games receive the elevated discourse they deserve. With your overworked TAs, Sean and Sergio. Hello, all you perfect organisms out there. Welcome to another beautiful episode of Fandom University, the podcast that mostly comes out at night. Mostly. My name is Sergio. And mine is Sean. We are here again to talk to you about aliens, xenomorphs, Ripley's. That's right. Plural Ripley's. Multiple Ripley's. Androids, synthetics, some you can trust, some you cannot. Colonial Marines, prisoners. Uh, disgraced medical officers. This is a this is an episode chock full of of content, and we're very excited to get started on it. Before we jump into it, though, we want to once again plug our giveaway for this arc. We are giving away a copy of the Art of Alien Isolation. It's a book that uh, it's a coffee table book of sorts. That it's the, the artwork that comes from the Alien Isolation video game. It's very beautiful. Like that game looks great. I mean, just the the whole aesthetic of Alien in and of itself. It's industrially beautiful somehow, like utilitarian beautiful. Yeah, that's a very good way to put it. We'll be giving away a copy of that book. Plus, we'll be also be giving away a copy of Free League's Alien RPG starter set. It's very easy to win. All you have to do is follow us on Twitter. Our Twitter handle is at fandomupodcast and send out a tweet using the hashtag fandom you podcast let us know uh, that you're following us let us know uh, give us some insight based on some uh, something you think about the series uh, answer a question we may have uh, or just tweet out and say like hey i want free stuff like we're not going to be mad at you yeah i mean we're we're giving it away like you don't have to be shy about wanting it free stuff's cool yeah i found ten dollars at work the other day and i bought everyone a round of soda waters see you pass on your good fortune because that's how socialism works right is that how that works uh, i assume so i i have no idea <laughs> i don't there's a, i think there's a lot of people in this country who don't know how socialism works i guess i'm one of them <laughs> But I do know how corporate greed works, and it's because I learned it from Whaling Utani. I learned it from watching you. That's right. So let's go ahead and jump right into it. Uh, the first thing we want to talk about is these series of short films that were released for the 40th anniversary. Yep. I think it's like six or seven of them. And they take place at some point after Alien, but before Aliens. The timeline in and of itself is a little vague, which is fine because it's intentionally left vague because these these things could be happening at any point in those 57 years. Right. Yeah. They're They're not connected to the mainline movies except in as much as like they're in the same world yeah none of the none of the characters none of the same characters show up they're they're one, little one-offs they're like little like seven minute one-offs yeah but great but fantastic very very impressive yeah um and the closest thing we've had to a new alien movie since uh covenant in 2017 so uh you know you watch them all back to back you've got you know almost half an alien movie uh, a very disjointed alien movie, but you know, um, I, I, they they do a whole lot with a little too. Like it, it, you know, with low budget, they. I remember them. You saw them more recently than I did. They look very um, polished. They're 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 a lot of fun, and they they definitely 
like it it's interesting because they don't expand the mythology um in a significant way most of them play into the usual tropes of the series you know androids that you can't trust things and, that we um, already know right um but they widen it in as much as it's happening in more than one place. So it's it sort of sets up kind of the modus operandi of of how the series is moving forward in the uh, uh, ancillary materials in the books and comics. It it sort of follows that same path of widening uh, the universe because you know, you, you get a question about like, how do you tell an alien story after Alien 3, right? Because as far as we know, Ripley, you know, takes out the last surviving, you know, member of the, the, the species when she dies. But, you know, so how do you do it? You have it happening more than one place. It's not a straight line from LV426. So it, it really opens up the possibilities for telling stories in that world, um, you know, that, that aren't reliant on Ripley's story. On Ellen Ripley's story. On Ellen Ripley's story. Yeah, correct. because uh, for, based on, from her first interaction with the xenomorph species to her last interaction from, you know, the middle of Alien to the end of Alien 3, her like her entire relationship with the xenomorph is documented right yeah you know it's 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 not like you know she you know running around earth as a little girl and you know had you know uh, a run-in with a xenomorph that that yeah can play in like uh, that's part of her backstory right yeah there's not there's not a good ellen ripley prequel to be told really yeah it's not like in star wars where there are you know like in the original trilogy there are big gaps between the movies of years so like there's infinite space to sort of play as long as you don't break certain rules you know after star wars and before empire can't really do that with ellen ripley or can you we'll get to that <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah we'll we'll get to that uh but for all intents and purposes you meet her in alien uh she falls asleep you don't see her until she wakes up at the beginning of aliens and then Alien 3 takes place immediately after Aliens, you know, she's again asleep, gets woken up. But yeah, there, there's definitely some, a little bit of wiggle room there that we'll talk about. But you can watch all of these short films, getting back to the 40th anniversary short films. You can find them all on YouTube uh, legally, too. It's not like you have to go on some dark web, like Chechnyan website to, <laughs> uh, to check them out. No offense to any Chechnyans out there fighting the power who stand with you comrade in solidarity but you know they're 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 really cool like it's like you said like the best way to describe them is like it's like getting maybe like a half an alien movie if you watch them all back to back to back to me it almost feels like and i know the two aren't connected at all but it feels like it's almost like a precursor to the upcoming alien tv show like it's kind of an idea of what we could get interesting i I, I don't know what to expect from that TV show. And I guess we can sort of get into that. Maybe maybe in the next episode, we can sort of uh, do some speculating about the future of the, the franchise. Yeah, I, I will say just, I'm, I love Noah Hawley. Uh, so I'm very, very curious to see what he has planned. Like how does an alien TV show even work, you know? Yeah, we'll, yeah, we'll definitely discuss that for sure. Yeah. The first major canonical installment after Alien is Alien Isolation. Right which is a video game. It came out in 2014. So it's about seven years old now. And it tells the story of a now grown Amanda Ripley going to Sevastopol station to try at, because they claim to have found the black box recorder from the Nostromo 
uh, Amanda has been looking for her mother for years and years. And um, this person or artificial person from the company, Samuels, comes to her and tells her, you know, hey, that's on this station. So if you want to come, you know, and get closure, that, that'd be cool. And she agrees. Uh, and basically they get there and, uh, you know, all hell has already broken loose. And, you know, as soon as you get on the space station, you're in just constant danger uh, playing as a- Amanda. Yeah, it's a, it's a terrifying experience. I remember the first time I played, I it wasn't even the the main game. It was it was one of the... like Crew Expendable? It wasn't Crew Expendable. It, I think it was called Last Survivor. And you're essentially just trying to, trying to outmaneuver the alien and just hearing its footsteps clanging onto the metal grating of the ship is just absolutely terrifying you know i'm sitting in the dark i got my headphones on it's all i can hear and try to run away and that didn't work and then the after i die the little uh, video game inset let me know like hey you can't run away from a xenomorph don't be stupid (laughs) why 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 are you so stupid don't do that (laughs) yeah um it's one of my favorite video games which i guess shouldn't be a surprise to anybody who knows me i have played through it several times it continues to scare the crap out of me i i I'm a fan of the survival horror genre in general, as those who listen to our, you know, Resident Evil arc would know already. But um, this one is different from a lot of the ones I've played because you remain consistently underpowered throughout the game. Like you are never truly safe, no matter how much stuff you have. Like you might be able to buy yourself a moment once you've got a flamethrower, but that's about it. Yeah, you're not going to find shotguns and rocket launchers and you're not your your level your equipment level isn't going to escalate as the game progresses like a normal video game would you you had this finite amount of supplies that was not collected for an alien invasion right and so you're going to have to make do with what you have and yeah you're absolutely right that's inherently different from most survival horror games and makes it even scarier yes yeah and there's no like game plus mode like in resident evil where you can sort of you know uh unlock stuff earlier and just kind of go through mowing down all the bad guys like if you want to play it again you just start at the beginning again and go and i think it's a testament to um how powerful that that design still is and how well designed the game is because you spend it's a game where you spend i would say at least 50 percent of the time hiding in lockers or uh under tables and stuff and trying not to move um and listening for sounds and you know in the vents above you and you've got a little motion tracker that'll tell you if something's coming towards you or farther away but if you use it too much the alien will hear it Um, and if you hide from it and it gets close, it'll stick its face right up against the locker where you're hiding and try to smell you and you have to hold your breath. And if you hold your breath too long, you will die. Um, as, 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 as humans are known to do. Um, and it's, I've never played another game like it and granted, I'm not like the most, um, well played gamer of all time, but like, I've never had to play a game where you had to hold your breath for that reason, you know, like games where you swim and stuff, obviously, you know, like in Mario 64, you go underwater, but it's scary. It's a very scary game. It's a stressful game. And it's not just the Xenomorph you have to be afraid of. Like there's also these androids um, that are, in my opinion, just as terrifying and upsetting (laughs) uh, in their own way that are sort of the, I guess the mid, the the main enemies, because the Xenomorph isn't always on screen like in fact if you're 
doing it right. I mean, there's some sections of the game where you can't help but have it around, but um, you know, if you're moving slowly and being careful, you won't draw it out too much, but um, the working Joes, you just have to live with. And also other survivors on the station, because nobody trusts each, uh, each other. They're, they're all terrified and they will kill you on site, you know, so. Um, and in addition to being a good game, I think it's a very good story too. Like it really, I think it opens up um, or had the potential to open up like a really interesting new branch in the narrative, you know, um, the same way, like you've got something like Star Wars Rebels or the Clone Wars to kind of tell stories in that universe that aren't directly, that feel close to what you know, but are also breaking new ground and doing different things. And there's a genuine emotional tie there too, because it's about this girl who's looking for her mother or this woman who's looking for her mother, I guess. Um, you know, and I, I, I was really sad that we never got a sequel to it. And I mean, there was a, a mobile game called um, Blackout, which is sort of a sequel, but it's, you know, that it's not, it, it was a mobile game. It's not, you know, a, a full sequel, but Amanda's in it. Um, and that's more of a game where you're just trying to get people it's kind of like a Five Nights at Freddy's thing where you're trying to get everybody out of a room before the xenomorph gets them. So that's uh, that's my pitch for why everyone should play Alien Isolation. And the novelization is actually really great too because, um, which interestingly didn't come out until 2019, a full five years after the the, the video game did. Oh, that might be indicative that, the, that while I, the video game might have not you know been a barn burner out the gate, it might have continuously picked up steam and stayed popular enough to warrant a novelization and possibly a sequel. The sequel you're talking about that you're lamenting we never got. I, I hope we will get it in some way, shape or form. I'm, I'm grateful that we've gotten other Amanda stories uh, in the meantime. But um, I did before we move on to those, I did want to talk about that novelization a little bit, which you know, novelizations of video games are tricky um, because what's fun about a video game is playing it, usually not, you know, uh, reading or a walkthrough or whatever. But um, what this book does that's really interesting is it gives you a ton of backstory about Amanda Ripley's childhood, her father, her stepfather, what it was like to... Um, live with a mom who had to take these jobs where she was gone for these huge chunks of time, what it was like to grow up after her mother went missing, um, the way Wayland yutani kept trying to essentially buy her off, like pay for her college, pay for her schooling, but also make it impossible for her to do it herself. So that's why when you meet her in the game, she's sort of working as this very low level tech because she can't get certified without taking Waylon Yutani money. So they've essentially cornered her all her life uh, because they, they basically want her to be quiet and let it lie so they can do whatever they're doing. Um, so, you know, and she's also lost a lot of money getting scammed by people who say that they have information on her mom yeah and so like she becomes she's already a sympathetic character but the novel just really brings home how tragic her story is and really deepens it um in a meaningful way that so i would i would encourage anybody who's played the game but hasn't read the book to check it out it, it's very good and that sort of tragic story arc 
um, it comes, I guess like full circle, but it, it starts to take a turn whenever she meets up with another character that's very integral to this period of time in the alien timeline, Zula Hendricks. She shows up. She is a former colonial Marine, I guess, uh, erstwhile maybe? Erst, yeah, because she's injured. I don't think she's discharged. She was she be, was a colonial Marine. She was always her story. She's always like she was always in smaller. She always seemed to like have to fight twice as hard to get half as much, which is, you know, not only uh, a indicative of her gender, but also her race. Yep. I feel. And so she proves herself to be tough enough to be a colonial Marine and ends up getting brutally injured on her first, like she breaks her back essentially on her first mission. And so she's beset with, with anger, with pity, with regret, uh, self-esteem issues. When we first meet her in the alien defiance comic book miniseries. Yeah. Yeah. It's so, yeah, they, they sort of make it, they, start threading and that's another thing that the alien isolation novel does is it retcons in uh zula as a friend of hers on that space station where you meet her so i think they maybe were a bit hospitalized at the same time or something like that i don't remember exactly but they sort of become buddies and defiance is sort of uh about i guess while while amanda's off doing whatever's happening in isolation zula's off uh, living through the events of Defiance, where she's leading a squad of androids to check out a derelict ship and find the xenomorph, essentially. Like uh, Defiance, you is where you really get to know Zula Hendrix, who has been given a mission. She's leading us, so she's been through the surgery. She's still in a lot of pain. She's not one hundred percent, and but she's been given a chance to go back into action, leading a squad of androids uh, basically to try and hunt xenomorphs and get a sample of them. So Waylon yutani um, you know, we're, we're again, starting to see in the short films um, and in this comic book, I would say that they've been aware of this creature for a while, like, it, and have been trying to get their hands on it unsuccessfully. So uh, the twist happens, you know, when when um, one of the androids she's with, Davis, um, who's sort of been rewriting his own programming to become more human, uh, basically kills all the other androids, and they change the mission and decide to go hunt down every xenomorph they can find and kill it. It definitely takes a turn from this is you know this is a one-off incident that we see in on lv426 or you'll have these hope to these these creatures are out and about in the galaxy which almost which almost supports my theory that at the end of alien covenant david essentially seeds the galaxy with these creatures that he's created because he knows humanity he knows mankind is going to try to colonize the the, the known the known galaxy is going to try to colonize outer space and he he wants to put he wants to nip it in the bud essentially right yep i i i i like that and i would really love to see those uh ends tied together whether in a movie or tv show or uh some you know comic or book i would love to actually get the uh official like yes <laughs> from somebody 
Um, oh, and there's also an interesting character in this comic. I forget her name. She's the doctor that they meet who gets infected with a chest burster and then like performs her own surgery to remove it. Um, oh God, what's her name? Yeah, that was pretty incredible. And survives and the creature survives and of course escapes of course like yeah they they like they're able to isolate the creature you know quarantine it and it escapes and starts going on a rampage um but they said it that goes into the novel prototype and the comic book series uh, resistance and rescue and again this these are sort of fill in the blanks of what was going on those 57 years between alien and aliens one really cool thing uh an alien prototype which is mostly about zula hendrickson a job she takes on sort of like training these colonial marines yeah like a, a security force they're not actually marines they're like local volunteers again it's it's another work in, whose purpose is to sort of flesh out this time period right and like you said, with the short films, the 40th, like you said, with the 40th anniversary short films, they don't really add to the mythology so much as reinforce it. Right. However, Prototype does something really cool that I don't think I've seen in any other work. The face hugger implants itself on a character who has cellular necrosis. He, it, the character is essentially a, a laboratory guinea pig. He goes in and gets... You know, takes these experimental drugs, experimental uh, medications, and gets paid for it. And that's how they get him in for, and that's how he ends up getting implanted with a face hugger because he comes in, uh, senses something's wrong, uh, but can't get away in enough time. But the alien, the xenomorph, essentially uh, takes that cellular necrosis into, into its DNA. And rather than dying from it, it mutates it and weaponizes it and so all you know in addition to its you know razor sharp tail it's you know talon like claws it's maw of death with a little like maw a tinier <laughs> maw of death inside of it it also can release these like uh like these spores on its back that releases like this toxic gas that infect humans with cellular necrosis and i thought that was a fucking badass idea yeah yeah i would love to see that in a in in one of the movies um and it's i think i guess at this point canonically speaking um not not chronologically in release order it's the first time that we see a xenomorph take on the specifically the characteristics of its host um in in that way um you know, when we get to Alien 3, of course, there, you know, there is uh, a xenomorph taking on the form of its host. But in this case, it's an actual disease. It's a, um, and it also puts the, the xenomorph or the necromorph rather at like odds with itself, like, because it's trying to reproduce two things at once. Well, that, yeah, that's one thing that gets pointed out is that uh, on one hand, it's trying to do its usual alien thing, which is to kill and reproduce at the on the other hand it's also trying to make head or tails of you know this disease that it sort of has the other thing it does is something that only ever happened in um the director's cut of alien which is where it actually starts kind of turning its captured people into eggs 
like you see it in a deleted scene in the alien director's cut where Dallas is sort of being entombed and it's starting to look like an egg. Uh, and the necromorph does that in this book. And that's the only other place that it happens. So, uh, which is interesting. It's yeah, it's very interesting. Uh, the theory behind that is not sure if that is just indicative of the particular type of xenomorph that's in the book, which they dub a necromorph because of the sec the, the cellular necrosis. You know, is that a result of its unique, you know, brand of DNA, the necromorphs that it can do that? or if it's just something that xenomorphs on the whole can do. I subscribe to the former rather rather than the latter, simply because if all xenomorphs were able to do this, then you know, they should have been able to do it this entire time, right? And it's something that you, it's sort of too big to retcon at this point. Yeah, it's. I, I think there's something in the Aliens novelization about this where, and again, you know, who knows what's canon, what's not with that stuff since it was, you know, 30 years, 35 years ago, but um, where that, if there isn't a queen, that is what the drones will do until they have a queen. Um, okay. That's a pretty good, yeah. I like that. So that, that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that they'll, they, that this thing is just so good at surviving and reproducing that it, it can even do that, you know, until mommy gets home. So yeah, prototype. I uh, it's by Tim Wagoner, who's somebody I actually know, uh, who has also written a very cool book about writing horror called Writing in the Dark. Um, so you should definitely check out this book and all his other books. He's written a lot of them. I'm jealous of how prolific he is, uh, and the fact that he got to write an alien book. So uh, good on you, Mr. Wagoner. He's living the dream. He he is living my dream. Give it back. <laughs> Like, how do you feel about the idea that Amanda is simply like an Ellen proxy? Like, it's she's essentially Ellen Ripley and the Ellen Ripley character when we couldn't have the Ellen Ripley character. Uh, I I sort of agree with that. It's a little elementary. It's a little dismissive of Amanda's arc. But, I mean, the, the, the brushstrokes are there and... And I and I I'm fine with it. I mean, the sort of defiant, intelligent, like take no shit character that Ellen was, you know, like her. Obviously, she is her mother's daughter, and we get a lot of that in Amanda as well. But what do you think? I mean, I I absolutely agree. I think that I think that's part of what makes using her so brilliant an idea that I can't believe nobody thought of it before because it keeps it familiar enough that it still feels like alien, but it also gives you room to play in ways you wouldn't otherwise, um, you know, and also gives you an emotional tie back to the original story. Uh, so I, I, I'd say, yeah, it's definitely a strategy, but I think it's, it's one that works. I don't think it's a cheat. I think it's, you know, it's a tool that they used and um, used effectively. Because I, I care about that character. I would love to see her in movies or TV shows. And then moving forward, the main aspect of the Resistance and Rescue comic book series is the relationship between Amanda Ripley, Zula Hendricks, and the now disembodied, omnipresent Davis android, whose android body was destroyed. And he essentially just like you know, uploaded himself to, I don't know, to Skynet, to the, to the monster web, and now, now exists everywhere. <laughs> I, I think Zula, uh, 
downloads him out of his old body and, and moves him into different um, locations wherever she goes. And it's a, again, like a little bit sad because you, I think Dark Horse lost the license um, right after Rescue, which is the last of this series was published and it went back to Marvel. So uh, even though Rescue does end on, there is an ending. It doesn't feel like the end of that story. Yeah, there um, definitely feels like there's there's more that could be said about these characters. Right. I don't feel like their journey is complete by any stretch. So I'm hoping that some way, shape, or form, whether it's in the books or the new Marvel comics. Um, Noah Hawley TV series. Or the Noah Hawley. Oh, man. Please, Noah, give us, yes, give us uh, our uh, Amanda and Zula TV show. I would, I would, I would love you so much. My theory, or my, not my theory, but like my hope, my guess my fantasy is that the alien TV show is Fargo-esque in that it's a different cast set within the universe that, that's loosely tied together. So the first season could be sort of like that, uh, the closure of the Amanda Zula Davis storyline and have to do with those characters and what happens to them then the second season could be something completely different. I would like that. And that seems to be very in vogue right now. Yeah, like with uh, American Horror Story. With American Horror Story, with Fargo in and of itself, with uh, American Crime Story. Uh, True Detective did that too. Um, yep. So yeah, I would um, I'd be all for that. I mean, I'm excited for whatever it's going to be, but I do love that about Fargo. It gives the show a very novelistic feel. Like I feel like each season, even though they are linked and they enrich one another or reinforce one another, as you you might say, um, they really do um, deepen the world in really interesting ways um, that are sometimes profoundly moving and sometimes just bizarre, uh, you know, like, like Fargo should be, I guess. And if you follow the storyline, if, if you follow the thread from isolation all the way through rescue, you come to really love and care about these characters, you know, all three of them, especially Davis, who, you know, after uh, just being beat over the head with just terrible Android after terrible Android and Bishop wasn't too bad. Bishop was nice, but he was almost like the outlier. He was the anomaly, yes. the exception that proves the rule. You get Davis who is actively trying to be human and actively trying to step away from that very binary uh programming that you know i need to listen to the corporation rather than i need to do what the corporation says rather than what may be the right thing to do right i i, I love uh when he's still got a body he starts wearing glasses you know just because yeah. he wants to be it's kind of like data he wants to be more human he wants to know what it's like to be us yes like i got i got heavy data vibes from from davis the entire time i Okay, was it just me? I, I thought maybe there was going to be a romance with Zula and Davis, but I guess it was just camaraderie, like in that Defiance miniseries. But when he still had a body, I thought there might be. But it's it's sort of nice that they, I mean, I would be very interested to see how like a consensual, you know, robot human relationship would play out in that world. But I also liked the fact that it was just about like, no, we just, we've, we've trauma bonded, you know, we're buds for life. You know? 
I I like that. I like the fact that there wasn't. I thought they might have hinted toward it, but I I think that platonic relationships between men and women need to be normalized in media. Yes. And so, and even if you know, if it's a, a robot, you know, I mean, he's he he's presenting as a man. Yeah. It's a humanoid male. Uh, you know, present like you said, he's presenting like a man. So. I, I like the fact that they didn't do that. They're like, these are just, these are just two pals. These are, they're two friends that happen to be of opposite genders. And that's the thing that's possible. In this science fiction world. <laughs> <laughs> so then out of the shadows, uh, out of the shadows takes a pretty interesting choice. Uh, and it, I thought the choice wasn't what I would, the one I would have made. but it was executed very well and it was the choice was made to have ellen is awoken in between in the 57 years it's like 37 years after alien so a good couple of decades before the events of aliens she's actually awoken from cryo sleep and she goes on an adventure and then gets her memory wiped at the end of it yeah and gets put back into into uh, cryo sleep yeah which is why she doesn't bring any of it up in in aliens, right? Yeah, that she's had a whole other and it, it, I, I, you know, if this was the first book that Titan did when they got the alien license, this was sort of their inaugural title, uh, Out of the Shadows. So I think there was a lot of pressure to do a Ripley story, and um, since that's kind of impossible to do based on again her, you know, her her entire career with the alien having been charted on screen. Like there's nothing we didn't see. Um, I think that that this was about the only thing they could do, which is a little bit of a cheat, you know, having this whole thing happen and then basically giving her brain damage so she won't remember it. Um, so that she basically has to go through the same trauma about like her daughter and everything twice. Uh, one thing that out of the shadows, so it does a couple of things when you put it in the context of when it came out, which is it makes very clear that the xenomorph is not isolated to LV426. Um, it introduces a whole other alien race we haven't seen before of like giant dog people uh, who are extinct because of this thing. Um, so it, 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 and it establishes, you know, the this character Chris Hooper and this wider world that they can sort of start um, exploring. Basically, so I I understand completely why they made the choice they did. Although um, when I first read the synopsis, I was like, I don't know about this. Um, oh, and one thing I love about this book is Ash is a computer virus. Yeah, I I I really enjoy that he comes back. He like almost like Davis. Like Zula uploads Davis's consciousness, you know, onto a flash drive, essentially. Uh, Ash does it to himself before uh, he gets, you know, essentially decommissioned on the Nostromo. And so you, we do get the return of Ash, the original asshole android. Right. Um, and I, I feel like there's definitely some big David energy he has towards Ripley in the sections where he's narrating, um, which... I, of course, as a huge David fan, uh, appreciate it. Um, but yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a fun read. Uh, and I think it does about the best you can do with a Ripley story where it's the original Ripley and not Ripley 8 from Resurrection, um, who we'll talk about next time. 
Yeah, I, I absolutely agree. I think based on the sort of constraints that they had in writing the story, like, you know, they, they wanted, you know, they wanted Ellen Ripley, the original, not a clone or anything in the story. And they made, they made the best out of, you know, what, what they had. And, and they're, like I said, with the fact that, that Ellen Ripley's entire career with the Xenomorph is documented, there's not much else they could have picked from. Yeah. And then River of Pain is essentially a prequel to Aliens. It tells a story of how Hadley's hope went to shit. Yeah. Yeah. You get um, a lot of Newt's parents. You get to know them a lot better. Um, and also Newt's mom's ex-boyfriend is the like in charge of security on the ship. And he's got a relationship with Newt. And so it, I actually like this one a lot. I think of that that trilogy, this one, so there's a third book, but it, it takes place after Resurrection. It, so it's really far forward from, and not as connected. Uh, I mean, it is connected, but not um, not so much to the movies. I think this one uh, by Christopher Golden, um, River of Pain is my favorite. I think it does a really nice job of fleshing out things with again reinforcing like enriching um it doesn't change anything you already know but it gives you more time with those characters and makes their annihilation that much sadder absolutely and i think when it comes to you know what titan is doing with these books i feel that it's they're probably in the same boat as whoever's writing star wars books in that you know like they're canon until someone makes a movie or a tv show that says otherwise right and so i feel like the the best move is to enrich or build upon rather than try to throw something new into it yeah yeah because as cool of an idea as it might be it might end up getting retconned in the future by a movie. Right. And then you have to decide, you know, whether, you know, you're going to stick with that or branch. I mean, they've already, you know, there was a whole line of Dark Horse comics before all of this stuff that, you know, was pretty closely linked and that all of that got retconned. So we've already been through one alien purge, you know, um, so it's possible. <laughs> the great alien purge of 2020, of 2020. Is that when Disney bought? Uh, 20th century Fox. I, yeah, but the 2019. But the the Titan stuff started in 2014, so I guess. Oh, and that's when the Dark Horse stuff went went by the yeah. way wayside. So the Great Alien Purge of 2014. Yeah. Um. So it, I I would definitely recommend this one to to anybody who's uh, interested in learning a little bit more. It's Newt's parents' story is a lot sadder uh, than you would guess just from the one scene you spend with them in the extended edition like you know as far as like the choices they've made and the, the dad in particular seeming really insecure but also kind of like chasing that high of like that big salvage score that's finally going to make them rich and like you know that clearly not working out and then you know his his wife's ex-lover her one that got away you know showing up on the station and being a pretty 
good alternative, like honestly, uh, in terms of how he behaves. So like there's there's some nice uh, colony drama in there. It, it, it's also an interesting exploration of what it would be like to live in one of these colonies, uh, which we haven't really gotten in the movies. I think there, like the story you're talking about, like the, the backstory of, I think the backstory of Newt's parents that you're discussing is a pretty good segue into the movie itself aliens yeah here comes the hulk which is uh sort of continues the like the subtext of you know the corporations like the versus like the working class like the haves and the have-nots and and the those with the resources wanting to and being able to do what they want while you know those that work for them are essentially cannon fodder and so like you talking about newt's dad sort of always holding out hope for that one big score is pretty indicative of that sort of mindset that people of a lower socioeconomic status have like they just they feel if they could just get that one break that it'll turn things around yeah and for one reason or another, whether it be uh, like their own machinations or something completely out of their control, it just doesn't ever seem to hit, doesn't ever seem to come to fruition. And so they're stuck in this perpetuating cycle that carries, that's generational, carries on to their kids as well. Yeah, yeah, just, yeah, I mean, there's even a line in the movie, you know, where Ripley says to Burke, like, I honestly don't know which species is worse. You don't see them trying to fuck each other over for a percentage, um, you know, which sums that's, it up. That's some now you're now you're spitting motherfucking bars. Now, <laughs> that's some real ass shit, Ripley. I mean, well, she, you know, she comes back like, you know, you leave the end of Alien feeling like, hey, everything's OK now. Like, you know, the the. The company's bad, but she got away. She'll live, you know, she'll tell her story. Yeah, the, the, the smart lady survived. The cat survived. Okay. Yeah, it's going to be all right. Like, she'll tell her story. It'll get out. You know, things will things will change. And instead, James Cameron, and he pulls this move again in Terminator 2. And I can understand why, because it's a good move. Basically, the, uh, the masters, you know, the corporate overlords at Weyland-Yutani basically discredit her and... Um, you know, gaslight her essentially, and yeah. when and when when you know that Waylon Yutani's been after this thing for years and years and years, you know, once you get into the canon stuff or the extended stuff, like that makes it even worse because you know that they know. It's not just like, oh yeah, this lady's crazy. It's we know you're right, but like, you know, you're yeah. It's not a matter of hey, like no one can really prove what you're saying regardless what you're saying could be could damage our reputation so we're just gonna we're just gonna cut that right now like they know for a fact that what she's saying is true right and they and they still fuck her up and like what happens to amanda in isolation she ends up like having to take shitty work you know at the the docks even though like she's a warrant officer like that she's you know, had a very promising career, um, you know, being a space trucker. Uh, and now she's working at the docks because she can't get the work she actually trained for. Um, so she is in a corner whenever, um, you know, Burke and um, 
oh, what's the lieutenant? Gorman. When Burke and Gorman show up at her apartment to ask her to go back to LV426 Lake, and the 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 bait on the hook is reinstating her flight status. Yeah, she can, you know, make the money that she, you know, has presumably been wanting to make her entire life, which is why she became a space trucker in the first place. Yeah, exactly. Because it was a, it's a blue collar job that paid well, essentially. Like it was a it was a it paid enough that she could take care of her daughter comfortably without her ex-husband who was kind of a shit, you know, um, even if it took and, her away from her. And bringing up Amanda, you know, in the extended cut, she is told that she's passed away. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that in the time, in the, in the 57 years that she was in cryosleep, Amanda has died. And so she is mourning this daughter that she you know, never got to say goodbye to. Yeah, yeah, uh, and and the and the parallels to like why she bonds so quickly with Newt are pretty obvious. Yeah, and it's isn't it insane that they cut that scene from the theatrical? Like that that scene by itself should have been in the theatrical at least. Cool little tidbit about that scene: the photo that they show uh, that they show Ellen of Amanda as an older woman is that Sigourney Weaver's real mom. <laughs> That is that is a nice, uh, very cool, nice little Easter yeah, egg. But I remember the first time I watched Aliens, I watched the director's cut, and then in prep for the for the podcast, I I apparently watched the theatrical cut because I thought I was going insane. That I was like, I could have sworn that there was a scene. <laughs> they tell her that Amanda's died, and and there's some scuttlebutt. There's some theories that that Amanda actually isn't dead. That's all that that Burke only told Ellen that to get her to agree to go to Hadley's Hope. Yeah, I I, because she's she was she was not doing it at first. She said, like, hey, this is your fucking problem. Like, you've gaslit me. You've essentially blackballed me from my career. You can kiss my whole ass. Right. Uh, I and, you know, based on what we see in the Amanda and Zula story, I would believe that 100% because like they were pretty much active enemies of Wayland Utani. So, you know, I think to pacify her, um, you know, I don't know whether Amanda actually died or not, um, you know, or, or, you know, uh, but I doubt it happened the way that they said, or if she's still alive at that point, you know, so that also leaves open, um, a lot of doors that could be explored in the future is like, how much time does Amanda spend in hypersleep? Where is she? Um, But yeah, I I think that basically they put her in a situation where she's got no options and no one to hang on to. Um, And she's not even on earth. She's still living on gateway station. It's like, I don't know if she can even afford to go home. It's kind of like Rocky too, where, you know, at the end of Rocky, there's this moment where Apollo Creed says to Rocky, like, ain't going to be no rematch. And Rocky says, I don't want one. And then the first act of Rocky too is basically showing how he misuses all the money, how his life gets worse, you know, and, and Apollo Creed sort of having his reputation dragged through the mud, basically brushing gradually away every reason um, that they would have not to have that rematch to make the rematch inevitable. 
Um, and I feel like Cameron does a really good job of that too, by sort of, not only do you have, you know, Ripley's daughter is dead, her career is ruined, um, you know, everyone she knows is dead at this point. You know, she's, she's a woman out of time, like Captain America. Um, and also she's got this terrible, like PTSD of this horrible thing that she knows is still out there, um, that she doesn't have closure with. Um, so that, you know, it becomes a question. Well, she doesn't know it's still out there, but she definitely has her her fears. Yeah, she she can't sleep based on yeah. based on what they've told her about Hadley's hope. Yeah. Um so I I I think it it does a really good job setting that up and that's something it, uh, about aliens actually that's worth bringing up is it's a long movie and it's um extended cut. It's over two and a half hours long, but and the xenomorphs don't show up until like the one hour mark, I think. Like there is a lot of setup to get there, but it doesn't feel like homework. Like I think- Yeah, James, I mean, you watch Titanic. It's a three and a half hour movie and that it just breezes along. James Cameron knows how to make it. Like just like Ridley Scott, he knows how to make a damn film. Yeah, yeah. And I would say um, he's better at- engaging the audience directly than Ridley Scott. Ridley Scott's a little colder, a little more voyeuristic, whereas Cameron, you know, he just, there's a big old bleeding heart right all, you know, on camera. Um, Aliens is a much more emotional film. Yeah, Ridley Scott is more detached and James Cameron's a little bit more populist. Yeah, yeah. He he vibrates at the same frequency as the general audience. And I think that's why, you know, every time he makes a movie these days, it's the number one grossing film of all time. Ends up, yeah, it ends up becoming the most popular film ever. Right. <laughs> so it, um, so Gorman and Burke basically, I don't want to say blackmail, but definitely uh, entice Ripley back to you know, to agree to accompany a colonial Marine expedition back to uh, Hadley's Hope or LV-426. And, um, you know, we, so we we cut straight from, you know, Ripley talking to Burke to the Sulaco where the, you know, we meet all of the colonial Marines, um, which is another great example of very quick character building as they're waking up and they've got their cheesy one-liners and little, you know, um, it's it's very quick sketching in of distinct characters, which is again, um, like they're definitely sort of archetypes. You know, you could argue that they're sort of cliches, but they're they work. I think the actors playing them um, are warm enough presences that it 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 works. It's one of those instances where they're almost caricatures, but you know, you know exactly who the character is almost immediately, and. Uh, whereas it's really cool that I, I learned that Ridley Scott had that really cool directorial technique of just ha- of having the actors just converse and and not really worrying about having like picking one aspect of the conversation out and just sort of it seemed more realistic and James Cameron apparently the all those actors they like hung out and and rehearsed and went to boot camp and and yeah had hadn't you know bonded for a couple of months before they even filmed their first scene. So there was already that rapport and Sergeant Apone apparently it was his actual, it was an actual Marine drill sergeant. And so his performance was 
spot on. Definitely. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and he was great. The first thing he does when he gets out of cryosleep is put a cigar in his mouth. Which I just, and I mean, and, and like that one thing is like you see him do that and you immediately, okay, I, I know what kind of character this is. I know who he is as a character. Yeah, he really is a great utility player in that movie. He's got so many great, like, he gets to do the button on a couple of scenes on the ship. Like, I think at least two of them. He has the Hudson come here, come here after Hudson asks, how do I get out of this chicken shit outfit? Uh, and then he also has the um, Bay 12 please thing when Ripley, you know, uh, fires up the power loader and then asks, where do you want it? In a very uh, suggestive manner. Um, and like the respect and warmth and humor just in that that one like look he has with Michael Bean guy knew his shit he was a good actor or is I don't know if he's still around but um, he completely sells it I also did want to talk a little bit about Michael Bean in the movie um, kind of wanted to get your take on that performance you know he wasn't originally cast in that role it was a different actor and that actor had to drop out I forget who it was and Bean was brought in at the last minute so like whereas all the other Marines got to um, sort of decorate their own armor and kind of like you know do it the actors actually got to you know customize it um he inherited this other actor's thing you know he's got the little heart with the locket on it and he's like i definitely wouldn't have done that in interviews that wouldn't have been my take um but i was just curious how you feel about that performance i didn't i didn't know any of that and i think that's kind of cool that you know because he is sort of set apart from the rest of the the rest of his company the rest of his group uh, I think that was almost uh, like sort of a happy, a happy accident. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, what I really like about him is he's a very, even though he's very capable presence, he's a very gentle presence in the movie too. Like very soft spoken, no swinging dick, you know, just sort of um, nice, like a nice person, you know, but also like incredibly capable. Like he doesn't have all that machismo bleeding off of him, but at the same time, he's the one smart enough and lucky enough to actually make it out. Um, so uh, there's, I, I really appreciate the quietness of that performance. Like there's that uh, another moment that I think about a lot is um, after they've had their first encounter with the xenomorphs and everything has gone to hell um, and Ripley wants to take off and nuke the site from orbit and Burke is like, absolutely not. And Ripley's like, I'm pretty sure that this operation is under military jurisdiction and Hicks kind of has this look on his face like, oh, fuck. And he just kind of quietly goes, yeah, yeah. You know, it, it's like, just, just, I don't know. It, 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 it's a great, I if it doesn't show, I love this movie. <laughs> it's got a lot of moments like that. Where well, just, yeah, well, just with two words, he, his, with his character exhibits, like he knows where he is on the pecking order. And how shit rolls downhill, which is a is a huge theme of this movie. You know, it's much like Alien, like crew expendable. That directive is given in the original film. They essentially let an entire colony die out, send a send a group of colonial marines to die. Like you know, like they're all expendable. Uh, Burke. How do you feel about Burke? Do you think he's do you think he's operating solely on orders, or do you think he's got a side a side thing going on? 
I'm not sure because I, I think I brought this up to you when we were um, going through the material is it doesn't quite line up something something there doesn't quite make sense and I can't remember what it is now I, it, it's something to do with oh yeah if Waylon Yutani is actively seeking this creature which is what the new canon material tells us then one why wouldn't they already be aware of LV426 unless like they didn't realize the Nostromo had sat down there, which is possible. Uh, or two, why would Burke have been the one sending the message asking them to go investigate those coordinates instead of Waylon Yutani immediately sending somebody? So either he had a boss who was doing it, or maybe at the level of corporation, you know, bigwigs that they were at, they don't know about it. That's the only other thing I can think of. And Burke is stepping into a department that's not really his trying to get a leg up in his career and financially. Yeah, I wouldn't I wouldn't put past I wouldn't put that past the Burt character. He's a slimy piece of shit for sure. Yeah, Paul Reiser's so good in that movie too. Like <laughs> fucking Paul Reiser. I mean, yeah, he's he's so good in that movie. I have to remind myself I don't actually dislike Paul Reiser. Right. I'm actually like I actually like Paul Reiser a whole lot. Yeah. Mad About You was, you know, it was fun. It was vanilla comedy, but right. it was fun. You know, you know his stand up is is decent. He's a nice guy. Right. But fucking Bert, I can't stand that <laughs> motherfucker. He's a, he's he might as well be an android as far as I'm concerned. Well, yeah, he turns out to be the Ash of the movie, right? Whereas Bishop turns out to be, you know, a hero. Which is an interesting sort of role reversal. Whereas in Alien, it was the robot that, you know, turns out to be the inhuman monster, which is, you know, par for the course. Sure. And this time it's the human who turns out to be the inhuman monster. Um, and one thing I also wanted to talk about is, you know, we talked about how Newt's character, we you know, obviously there's the obvious bond between her and Ripley. You know, Newt has lost her parents. Ripley has lost her daughter. So, I mean, it's, you know, it, so it's no surprise that they bond as quickly as they do. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and that, I mean, that's sort of the heart of the the movie is really about this small family being formed, you know, of Ripley, Hicks, and Newt, uh, and Bishop, um, you know. Wacky Uncle Bishop. Yeah, exactly. He'd be the wacky uncle. Um, but on the on the opposite side, you have the queen mother mm -hmm. who's producing all these xenomorph eggs and sort of the idea of like the subtext and and what one, one thing about reading things through a certain lens is that just because you don't necessarily see it doesn't mean that someone else doesn't see it and or it's not there right so you have this very like eurocentric traditional looking setup with hicks and ripley and newt and and bishop like a weird uncle bishop and then you've got this weird dark other essentially that is just producing offspring at a at an at a at a alarming rate and those offspring all they're set to do is to consume and destroy and produce right and reproduce to and all they're and all they're all and all they are programmed to do is consume destroy and reproduce yeah do you see anything problematic about the idea that there's this physically dark creature who is basically seen as a disease? Yeah. 
exactly exactly i i do I, I so it's it's an interesting i think it goes all right i'm gonna i'm gonna kick it way back here i think when you get back to like the roots of cosmic horror uh particularly hp lovecraft who's sort of the i guess einstein of, of uh you know or, or george washington of cosmic horror or whatever you know a lot of his work is based in fear of other and his own virulent racism um and it shows up in the work so part of me is like that's kind of for better or worse like been baked into cosmic horror from the get-go there's another part of me i'm i guess i'm of a few minds about it there's another part of me that says yes at a purely symbolic level this is a gross thing like it is not it it is troubling on the other hand you take into account the factuality within the story where we know for a fact what these things are and what they do and what they have done to people um and you know then it becomes a question of just survival but at a metaphorical level is where it becomes troubling at a practical level i don't think it's overtly racist but at a symbolic level i think that there is at least some an unintentional uh yeah colonial you know uh colonial way of thinking there for sure um and it bums me out because i i love this movie and i part of me hates how educated i've gotten because it makes it harder to enjoy these things without the critical eye or without feeling a pang of guilt um which is why i think so many people are resistant to hearing these kinds of things about the things they like is because they it either has to be all good or all bad you know they they can't engage with it at a nuanced level um but yeah it's something that i've been struggling with since you brought it up i hadn't even really thought about it through that lens before um and i'm still wrestling with it um I think, and this isn't to say like, oh, like James Cameron is a racist. James Cameron made a racist movie. And I'm sure someone will take that snippet and be like, fandom university podcast host claims James Cameron is a racist. <laughs> I do not think he's a racist. But like you said, it's those sort of ideas are baked into um, this culture, this culture and, you know, the the genre. And it's something as an example that's that's been going on in the tabletop role-playing game universe lately, you know, the very problematic ideas of race and gender and color in games like Dungeons and Dragons uh, in, the, in the past are now starting to get remedied. And there is some pushback from that. I think, I don't know of a lot, but I think some of the pushback from that is from people who genuinely like haven't examined it or maybe don't have the tools to examine it and don't realize that, hey, like maybe like a dark elf, maybe having like a drow, maybe that's that's kind of racist. Right. But because in their mind, it's just like, oh, it's just, you know, it's just a dark skinned elf that lives underground, red eyes, that all, all of that to them signifies evil. And it's not because they think it's evil, but like you said, it's baked in to the genre and they haven't really dug into and examined like why that's baked into the genre it's just one of the things that just happened that's just the way it is and that's the starting point let's not bother going back into the the prologue 
or the prequels and to figure out like, you know, you know, like you see, you see Darth Vader in a, in a new hope and you're like, Oh, that's the bad guy. And you don't watch the prequels. And so you don't see how he went from a pod race loving sand hating kid to the ultimate menace of the galaxy. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's an interesting thing that genre is having to deal with because I think a lot of the appeal of genre for a long time is escapism, right? It's it's about going to a place where you know who's good and who's bad and who to root for and you're allowed to leave behind the complexities of the modern world for a world where everything is delineated for you. It's very clear there are alignments, you know, like in D&D. Um, and that we as a culture are sort of moving away from uh, this sort of vilification in general, I think, uh, or, or trying to. Um, I mean, look at all the uh, villain rehabilitation movies, you know, we've gotten from Disney in the last few years with Maleficent and Cruella, you know, where it's like, no, there are reasons, you know, basically, like these are anti-heroes, they aren't just mindless forces of evil um and like you would think something like the alien itself the xenomorph would be a perfect bad guy alien because like it's not a person it's not sentient in a way that we understand it literally is just there to kill it is a terrifying monster but when you start actually pulling the lens wider out and looking at the context of where it was how it was made, who made it, the fact that Aliens is very clearly a Vietnam movie, you know, uh, there's definitely um, some troubling realizations that uh, you start to have. No, and I think that the fact that it, it very much is an allegory for Vietnam, you know, you have these Western forces that show up on a terrain that is unknown, unfamiliar to them, fighting against a for all intents and purposes indigenous species indigenous race that uses the environment to their to their advantage and uses everything uh, around them to their advantage yeah yeah exactly that that basically acts as a yeah uh, it, it's it's tricky, right? because like in the world of the story, this creature is objectively, amoral and um you're literally talking about human survival um which i would say when it comes to i think humanity is allowed to defend itself right uh that's my general attitude although i don't know if it actually is i think maybe we do need to be wiped out but you know <laughs> i mean it, those the idea comes and goes like uh we're we're, we're good like i watch a i watch a very heartwarming Puppy video, video. On, yeah yeah you know, and then I see something like I then I watch the news. I watch something <laughs> on on face on like TikTok and like that's sweet. Like we're maybe we're gonna be all right. And then I watch the actual news and I'm like, no, that's that's not. But that's it, it, then there's the idea that you know what came first, the chicken or the egg? Is you know are these like the idea that the the xenomorph is like the queen mother is just like rapidly producing all these offspring. And like, like I said before, those offspring, they're just programmed to, to consume and destroy and to reproduce in and of itself. Are those, is that idea inherently bad? And have we placed that, have we placed 
that on to uh onto people in real life to vilify them yes yeah and so is it is it a matter of what the xenomorph is doing is bad for sure and but in an effort to to other uh, a minority group of people we have also placed those attributes on them right even when they were more than likely not true so now the wells has been poisoned you know for better or worse right exactly yeah and and i think that that same assumption of lesser sentience too has also been projected onto marginalized groups of people for sure so like they're like oh well they just don't understand so it's okay they're not as human as we are so you know um so yeah i i think that that's that's all baked in there i think that it's unintentional. Uh, I think that the movie itself is good hearted and pro people, but yeah, you see Cameron even are, you know, sort of wrestling with that idea in his, you know, last movie, you know, uh, avatar where he's got an indigenous people who are being oppressed by colonial forces. And there's a little bit of the white savior in there, right. With the, you know, the man who, the, the white man who goes native and falls in love, you know, with a beautiful minority, you know, indigenous princess and all of that. But um, so it's still kind of operating at that mid-brow, we're not quite ready to talk about this and get really real with it level, but at least I think it speaks well of his evolution as an artist and a thinker that he's at least examining these ideas, you know, even if he isn't, uh, you know, even if he's doing so in sort of a baby boomer fashion. No, yeah, for sure. And I think you brought up the point that, you know, this is, it's, you know, it's hard for people to, you know, it's to not have this sort of like binary thinking and that, okay, well, like, this idea that you know that uh this sort of like colonial mindset that that might or might not be in aliens makes it bad and i'm not going to support this movie more and you're kind of throwing the baby out with the bathwater. you still have a very strong female character lead in ripley you know there's a sort of there's an underlying romance with her and hicks mm-hmm. and you know there there are some shots of her like in like very like in, in, in her underwear and like sort of like a tank top but she isn't really sexualized in in the traditional like female action hero sense. Yeah. Like she's not wearing like thigh high boots and a bustier. Like she's wearing and then this goes on into Alien 3 where she's wearing the exact same thing as the other inmates and even shaves her head to look exactly like them as well. Right. Yeah. Yeah. They don't. I mean, Sigourney Weaver, very beautiful woman. But yeah, the, they it's like they don't go out of their way to dowdy her up, but they also don't go out of the way to like make her look glamorous either. You know, she's allowed to sort of just be be a person. person. Yeah. And another thing I like about the movie is that she's allowed to be strong, but also vulnerable, gentle. Yeah. Yeah, Vulnerable, which is a little different from what you get with Sarah Connor, right. And Terminator two, which is sort of the sister movie to aliens i would say in terms of like it's especially in terms of the the women's arcs as that she's allowed to be gentle in a way that sarah is not because of you know her need to train her son to be this you know important person so i really yeah i 
the movie's got a lot going for it. You know, you, you just have to put it in its context, right? And I feel like it's a movie that's not without its flaws based on like some readings of it. But I think that it's got enough going for it to to worth to you know to merit watching and celebrating. Absolutely. Whereas Alien Three <laughs> a pretty good segue to that uh which we watched the assembly cut for the podcast it's 30 minutes longer it makes more sense i guess story-wise than the theatrical cut like a lot of the stuff that was that edit that ended up on the editing room floor was put back in and sort of makes the story more cohesive but it definitely fucks with the pacing yeah i um you know, I'm usually a defender of Alien 3, like, uh, not in terms of like, oh, it's better than the first two, but in terms of, hey, I like that movie. You know, it, it's got some some moves and it's a appropriately bleak ending to the type of story, you know, um, you know, the, it, it feels more in line with the original Alien in terms of its ethos than Aliens in some ways, um, which is, I feel like Aliens is the outlier of the six films that we have in the series in terms of its outlook and its um, warmth. Uh, that the, you know, the, it's actually a much colder series. And, um, but as a follow-up to Aliens, it's a pretty brutal kick in the dick the first time you watch <laughs> it. Um, I mean, well, yeah, it starts off with uh, everyone dying except for Ripley. Newt's dead. Hicks is dead. Bishop is smashed to bits. And the movie itself is, I mean, it takes place in a, a giant prison. And like, like I said, it's industrial just, prison. Yeah, yeah, the whole thing is very dark and bleak. Nihilistic. Although it ends on a positive note. It's a bittersweet note. You know, Ripley sacrifices herself. Ripley is infected with a, uh, with a, a queen. queen, with a queen egg, which... We're led to believe that the face hugger that infected Hicks that causes the uh, the, the crash essentially, and you know, the idea is that because it seemed a little bit bigger, based when the when the inmate held it up, he said, "Hey, what's this?" Right. It seemed a little bigger than normal, and so the idea is that it, it had two different eggs. It had a normal egg and a queen egg. The normal egg is what uh, I get, you, you don't see it in the assembly cut, but it gets it attaches itself to the dog. Right. And in the assembly cut, it attaches itself to uh, an ox. So I think you actually, I, it's been a while since I watched the theatrical, but I think you have a different looking creature uh, in the two different movies, at least in the, the wider shots. Um, somebody can write in and tell me I'm wrong about that. But um, fandom you podcast at gmail.com. <laughs> um, but uh, that that's my vague recollection is yeah it can't it the xenomorph comes from a different place but yeah i i'd always been sort of a um a defender of alien 3 but this last time i watched it it was it was a chore to sit through like it was the the first the first act is decent the third act is great yeah. the third act is 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 as good as you could hope for an alien movie uh it's that that middle act that just drags and is it's a lot of character building but it, the pacing's just off yeah and they do they try a lot more things in the extended version to 
stop the creature. Like they have more plans that go awry. There's a whole subplot with Gallic who is spared by the alien at first and then ends up setting it loose after they trap it the first time. Um, so like there, there's a lot more going on. The problem is that none of it is particularly interesting. None of the characters, like it's a bunch of, for the most part, bald British white men who it's kind of hard to tell apart, especially as dark as the movie actually is, like in terms of the look of the film. I mean, honestly, I knew who Ripley was. I knew who Clemens was. I knew who, yeah, I know who Andrews, the warden was. I knew who his assistant was. And I know who Dylan played by Charles Dutton was. Right. And everyone else, the other characters, like I just like they're they could be that they could have been the same guy. Inter interchangeable intergalactic chimney sweeps, <laughs> like just rapist chimney sweeps. Um, in a lot of ways, it's it it's interesting because Ripley, I think, is at her hardest in this movie, like way harder than she is in the first two movies. Like she well, is, she's lost everything before. Like she's really lost it now. Yeah, exactly. Like she is at the end of her rope essentially um, like she's she has no fucks to give yeah exactly like um she has to make sure that newt wasn't infected and so she thinks they're safe and of course they're not um but yeah they're i honestly i would suggest to most people uh the theatrical version if you want to watch it um and i may get strung up for that but i have i mean I struggled to sit through that movie. Um, you know, it does not, it's not super respectful of the audience's time. And I think calling it an assembly cut is a good way to put it. Like it's definitely not a finished film. Um, you know, what, what we got, it seems like got sort of mangled. So there might not be a correct finished version of Alien 3. Like it's always gonna be compromised. Yeah, it, it, it's tough. I wanted to ask what you thought about, um, we actually see Ripley, like, speaking of giving no fucks, she actually bones down for the one and only time in these movies. Yeah, I mean, I uh, can't fault a grown woman for wanting to do grown women things. Yeah, well, I mean, also, you know, just to relieve some stress, <laughs> yeah. maybe. Yeah, she sleeps with Clemens, the, the doctor, who we get his backstory when he explains that uh, he was a doctor in, in real life, essentially, was addicted to opioids. He was addicted to morphine, got off of work, got drunk, got called back in. And as a result of his inebriation, several people died. And so he was sentenced to four years. Uh, before we started recording, I said, it's good to know that even like 200 years in the future, we still haven't figured out how to treat addiction uh, when it comes to the criminal justice system. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That his life is essentially, even though uh, that that's why he's still on that planet, even though his sentence ended some time ago is because who else will have him, you know? That's exactly what he said. He says, no one will hire me. And he says, like, my, like this, my life was essentially ruined by this experience. Right. And that's a terrifying idea for somebody who has already served their time, you know, ostensibly and paid the price that society has dictated. This is the cost of what you did. But the punishment just continues on. And I think really you know, Ripley's got a, a speech in the movie about like, you know, they think you're crud, they think you're garbage. And like where she's really finally articulating like the entire 
ethos of Weyland Yutani and the way that the 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 cap late stage capitalism is treating these people. Yeah, and so uh, you know, on in a broader sense, what do you think this movie says about the prison industrial complex? I don't know that it's necessarily making a statement so much unless the statement is just sort of a nihilistic shrug of capitalism what are you going to do you know i mean i think that's i think that's right i think that it takes the idea of like uh, this is where we are as a society now let's just extrapolate that you know 200 years into the future based on what we know about whaling yutani and how that corporation looks like and how it operates you know what would you know, what would prison look like? How would prison operate? And I think it's on the nose as to, you know, as much as prisoners, like prisoners are, you know, uh, I know in Texas, you know, they produce all manner of things that are that are then sold by the state. And so they're, cre- they're producing these goods, they're laboring and producing these goods that they don't see any profit off of. Right, they're essentially slave labor. And that's something that's that was ratified by the 13th Amendment. It abolishes slavery, except as a punishment for crime, whereof the party shall be has, shall have been duly convicted, shall exist in the United States. So it's saying that you know slavery or involuntary servitude, that can happen, except, which is to say, like these are the this is the one situation where where one of those two things can exist. So it's saying that slavery cannot exist except slavery can exist when this when this parameter is satisfied. Right. And shockingly now we have the largest incarceration rates in what the world probably for, yeah, per capita for sure. Um so, you know, I don't think that's an accident. I don't think whether well, all right. I think the system however it's designed works that way whether somebody deliberately designed it that way or not that's how it's functioning um and you know that's horrifying and i think that's part of why alien 3 is such a tough sit is it's just not it's not fun it's not a fun movie to watch like it's bleak and sad and also after the grandeur of aliens where the world felt like it opened up and big new ways it gets very small again yeah it feels like a very it, it feels inappropriate as a sequel to aliens in terms of you know giving the audience more it instead it gives us less and almost punishes us for caring and then switches out the cast with characters who aren't as compelling or as interesting although there are some highlights um really the- it's it's dylan and, and clemens are the only standouts of the cast of the supporting cast. Yeah. Yeah. And they're, they're both great. They, they, I, I like them both very much, but in the extended cut, that's the other thing I wanted to say. Ripley almost becomes a supporting character in some places. We spend so much time with the chimney sweeps that like she disappears for chunks of the film or just is sort of quietly watching while all these men are doing other things. She's a relatively passive force in this movie until the last act. Um, yeah, which that's it's a good point you bring up. It's probably why the second act is so boring to me. Yeah, yeah, she's she's got nothing to do but wait um, until you know, and wait to find out she's preggers. You know uh, that her worst nightmare is coming true, 
and then to try and use that to stop it. Um, so it's, I understand why people don't like it. I didn't enjoy it this as much this time as I have in the past. Um, and I, I don't know if that's just because of the reason or me growing or changing as a viewer. Um, I don't know that I'd say it's a bad movie. It's just, it makes a lot of choices that are really bizarre in retrospect. And I think something that's to be said is like, it's the movie that either, either version that we, that you watch either theatrical or assembly cut is really sort of an, uh, an amalgam of two or three different movies and scripts put together. Yes. Like the production of alien three is historically known as being a complete clusterfuck so much that David it was David Fincher's debut yeah directorial debut like feature film debut and he completely disavows it he doesn't want anything to do with it he wishes that his name could be taken off but yeah it's like I said it's historically known as a complete clusterfuck you know and that's it's kind of funny this you get the the suits the corporate suits at 20th Century Fox you know sticking their fingers into the creative element and and fucking it up and i can't help but like laugh at the irony of it of you know of the corporation fucking it all right. up for the people who actually know what they're doing yeah absolutely and i would encourage anybody who's curious about the development history of alien 3 which in itself is a fascinating story to check out if you can get your hands on it um the supplemental features on the alien 3 blu-ray or dvd um i think they might be out of print right now but i think they're going to release the uhd box set next year like you see how many different like william gibson wrote a script uh vincent ward has a story credit on the script but when you actually see what his script was it was much weirder like there was a wooden planet and it was kind of a snow white thing where ripley was snow white uh, and the prisoners were like monks um so like you can see how those things evolved, but um, I just like thinking of from, if I'm a studio suit, like, and I know people loved aliens, it is baffling to me that I would okay a script that kills off the beloved secondary characters in the first five minutes. Like that would never happen today, never. And it's, and I don't know, I can't, I can't pretend to understand what some people like that in the positions that they are thinking, you know, it's like, I, like I, for some reason talked lamented to you for about 20 minutes, the, the sad state of, of professional wrestling <laughs> yeah. a couple of days ago. And just like, based on like short-term thinking and it might've, you know, for all, you know, for all we know, it might've been like a focus group, like a bad focus group that that they got their hands on is like hey like what if we made this kind of movie that was seemed like a more organic sequel to aliens right and for whatever reason the people that they spoke to didn't like it like all right well let's you know that's not what the people want let's go completely let's let's go somewhere else let's do something completely different yeah i i admire the idea of trying different things and that's one of the things i love about this series is how elastic it is uh in its filmic installments anyway and how different each of the four films in the original run are from one another um so i like that the series never played it safe um 
even even the Ridley Scott entries don't play it safe. Um, you know, it, so it's it's admirable even when I don't like the end result. Um, and I am I do find the final moments of Alien Three very moving. One thing I hate about the extended edition is that that or the assembly cut is in the theatrical. Ripley has the chest burster burst while she's falling. And in the assembly cut, she just falls in the lava just and is gone. Falls into the lava. But falls into the molten In the lava. theatrical, like it's coming out of her and she grabs it so it can't get out and like carries it down into the lava with, or the, 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 the molten steel or whatever, um, which is such a baller you know ending i mean it's it's in keeping it with with ripley's character for sure yeah like, exactly it it it's upsetting but at the same time she gets that one last victory um that she takes it down with her and i also love the ominous weird Waylon yutani like white jacketed like scientists who show up with uh, what might be another Bishop Android or a man who designed it. Like, I'm still not really sure he's credited as Bishop two in the credits, but then in supplemental materials, he's just, isn't his name like Michael Wayland, Michael Wayland. Yeah. And so, uh, Michael Bishop Wayland. Yeah. Which so, I, I guess Wayland might've had other kids, <laughs> you know, the, the Peter Wayland or, uh, you know, like, a uh, it could be a nephew who and just and kept the Whalen name. I mean, obviously, like if if like very closely connected to the Disney family, but because your mom's maiden name is Disney and then she married some guy named Joe you know, Johnson, like I'm pretty sure you're like, ah, we're gonna go with Disney. Yeah. Like yeah. as far as <laughs> fair enough. But then again, Joe Hill is the um is stands testament to the opposite of that. Nicholas Cage and Jason Schwartzman too. True. true. They're both Coppolas. They want to make it on their own. They want to make it on their own steam. I respect that. Good for them. I respect that. I respect That's that. From Spider Man. Well, let's uh, let's go ahead and wrap up this episode. We talked a lot about these fucking movies, yeah, and these comic books and these books, uh, and we're gonna talk a lot more. We've still got two more episodes coming up here in the next uh, month or so. Next episode in a couple of weeks, we will be discussing the non-canon material, the Alien versus Predator movies. Uh, will be the alien the the William Gibson uh, script that you uh, alien three script that you brought up the uh, dark horse actually made it into a comic book series and so we'll be discussing that as well speaking of dark horse comics you know we'll probably be bringing up some of those we haven't read all of them because there's a ton but you know we we read we've, read we've a got chunk. them all yeah <laughs> yeah we read a good chunk of them so it'll probably inform the conversation as well and we're also going to talk about resurrection right I feel that Alien Resurrection might end up getting retconned out of continuity. So are we putting it in that next episode? We will be discussing Alien Resurrection as well. Just because, you know, it's... It's a, It's so far removed from the rest of the it's, timeline. It's, uh, yeah, it's like 200 years, 400 years, something like it's that. It's the Batman after, beyond of Alien. Yeah, after... Yeah, exactly. After Alien 3. And it's... Um, uh, so I did... You know, I felt like it doesn't really connect even though it has ellen ripley in it it doesn't really it is i don't feel it's part of like the ellen ripley story arc um she doesn't feel like ellen ripley in that movie like i don't see an ellen ripley she is a different character yeah she definitely plays it different. she plays it almost like a superhero so yeah like a a, a semi-psychotic superhero 
in some ways. I mean, if you went through everything that she went through, you might. Well, yeah, and she way. was raised in a lab like Homelander on the boys. So, I mean, you know, we all saw how and that we all see how that, went, <laughs> how that went down. Thank you so much, everyone, for listening. Once again, if you would like to try to win a free copy of The Art of Alien Isolation, the coffee table book, or Free League's Alien RPG starter set, once again, all you have to do is follow us on Twitter at FandomUPodcast. Send out a tweet using hashtag FandomUPodcast with whatever. Thank you for entering me. I want to win. Your show is awesome. Your show is terrible, but give me free stuff. Just send out a tweet. Follow us and send out that tweet. Very simple. You will automatically be entered to win. We will be drawing two winners at the end of the arc. Uh, In addition to all that, can check out the rest of our social media links in the show notes, including a link to the Robots Radio Discord, of which we are members of the Robots Radio Rocket Club. Very excited to be continuing our partnership with Tom and everyone else. Uh, Sean, is there anything else that you would like to to plug or bring up before we head out? I mean, I'll throw in my usual plug for Cosmology of Monsters, which is uh, the novel I wrote and should be available wherever you get your books. Um, you might even be able to walk into a Barnes and Noble and find it depending on how big their horror section is. So um, if you haven't read it, please read it uh, and uh, you know leave it a nice review online or keep your trap shut. Um, no, I'm just kidding. Uh, I love, <laughs> and if you have read it, uh, you know, like I said last time, buy a dozen copies for your friends and family. Um, right now I'm only about a hundred copies away from passing a big milestone sales wise for a first novel from a no name author. So, uh, if you guys want to, you know, buy that for, uh, I don't know, your 4th of July Easter basket or whatever it is, your, your next gift giving holiday, that would, that would be super. Go buy a copy of a cosmology of monsters and help this young man fulfill a boyhood dream of becoming the greatest writer of all time. Yeah, if I sell 100 more copies, I I get the certificate in the mail. (laughs) Seals the deal. We want to thank Go Ashley O for her amazing voiceover work. And that pretty much wraps it up for us this week. Thank you so much for listening. My name is Sergio. My name is Sean. Take care of yourselves and each other. Oh, what the fuck are you doing over here? <laughs> you know what I'm doing? I'm trying to find a thing. Get the fuck away from her. Who are you talking to?